When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with a repeat guest, Pascal Sinet. Pascal, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So we had you on, I think a couple of months ago, I definitely encourage people to go back and listen to the first episode. It's really good. We had a very strong feedback on it. And you have a new book out, which we're going to get into. But maybe before we do that, for people that didn't listen to the first conversation, could you give a bit of a kind of background bio on yourself and, and kind of what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So a very short, uh, born in Germany, grew up at the right place at the right time during the first dot-com boom, and then got into tech. Was part of the team which built eBay across Europe, was part of the team which brought me to the United States, part of the team which created the Firefox web browser. And then about 10 years ago, uh, I got really fascinated by this idea around how do we better prepare ourselves for the future? You know, having been part of tech, having seen the future being very disruptive. So I joined Singularity University, which is this interesting think tank out of Silicon Valley, I was there very early. And then about four years ago, I took what we learned from Singularity University and I really tried to marry it with the business background I have and trying to answer the question for leaders and their organizations of not only how do you conceptually think about the future, but how do you actually prepare your company for the future? And that led then, you mentioned we just released a new book on disruption, which we call a little tongue-in-cheek disrupt disruption. But that led essentially to like a four-year journey into this crazy world of innovation, disruption, and transformation, really trying to figure out how do we best arm the people we work with, with the tools and the frameworks and the mentality to not only survive in this crazy world, but really thrive. And on the first conversation we had, we talked about futurism, you being mm -hmm. a futurist, and you kind of pushed back on that terminology mm -hmm. and then that moniker. 
And you kind of do the same thing with disruption. It's funny. You said that futurism had almost kind of lost its meaning. The background I've been doing on this book, you know, there's so much, there's so much talk around disruption that it's almost really done the same thing. It's really lost yeah. any true meaning. Nobody actually understands what it means. And if every company is being disruptive, it's not possible if you actually look yeah. up the definition of disruption. Yeah, absolutely. And make no mistake, you know, we make this point very often that we truly stand, when it comes to disruption, we truly stand on the shoulders of giants with people like Clayton Christensen, Geoffrey Moore, who've done incredible work to really get us understand disruption better. What we found, though, is two things. One is, and you already mentioned this, it really like hard to see a business journal article which doesn't say disruption somewhere in the title. So I think it has, it's just really overused. And we describe disruption very often for things which aren't actually disruptive. They're, you know, the disturbances, they're innovative, but they're not really disruptive. The second point we, we wanted to make is that, and again, like this comes out of the work we've done with our clients, that very often when you think about disruption, and even if you look at the, the classic canon of disruptive stories, you know, the Kodak's blockbusters, Nokia's of this world, and you look closer you realize that the underlying consumer need, the thing the customer hires your product or service for you to do, doesn't actually change. And there's a beautiful quote from Jeff Bezos, who at a conference about 10 years ago, made this really interesting throwaway comment. He said, like, you know, it's kind of funny because people always ask me, what's new, what's coming in 10 years? And he said, that's an interesting question. But really, the more interesting question is what doesn't change in the next 10 years, because that's what we build our businesses on. And he goes on to, you know, like humorously explain, like, listen, people come to Amazon because they want to have lower prices and fast delivery. There's no world I can imagine where someone comes to me in 10 years from now and says, man, Jeff, I love Amazon. I just wish you would be a little bit slower and you would be a little bit more expensive, right? And, you know, the same is true for your business, of course. Like there is certain consumer needs. They're incredibly robust. What happens, though, is the way we fulfill those needs, and that can become disruptive. And so we dig into this, and then we dig particularly deep into the questions of how do you manage these transformations successfully? So before we get into the guts of the book, you're, you are very research-oriented, and you do a huge amount of volume of interviews across a wide array of professionals. Could you maybe go a little bit more in depth in terms of mm -hmm your process and the, the data that you assembled before getting into the book itself? Yeah, no, absolutely. So starting with, I know squid, <laughs> I don't know anything. So the disruption book really, there's an interesting starting story. And then I'll tell you a bit about the, the research process. But the starting story was, as so many times in my life, I had a really fascinating conversation, like the conversation we're having today, with a gentleman called Andy Billings, who's at Electronic Arts, the game making company. And um, in this conversation, we talked about innovation disruption and how Electronic Arts manages this as a 40-year-old company in a fast-moving market. And he ended our conversation with this kind of like comment. He said, you know, when you talk to the people on the front lines, they tell you this whole disruption thing looks nothing like they write about in the books. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, I've read most of the books and he might be right. So we then became really curious. And this goes to the research process we started. By now, we've spoken to more than 300 like really world-class leaders in this space, people who have done, who have done transaction, transformation really well. And we asked them one simple question. He said, don't give me a theory or, you know, like the, don't show me the PowerPoint deck. Tell me what you did. And as you can imagine, and that's the beauty if you do large volume data or collection, you see patterns emerge. Um, so speak to enough people and you see the same stories repeating itself. And 
So we took those nuggets and basically distilled them out and then validated them with our own clients. So we brought this to our clients and our consulting practice to see if that holds, if the insight we gathered actually is real, and then started writing them up. So that's the, that's the process So really driving, coming from a perspective of what's actually working in the market and mostly by asking enough people. So it, it begs the question, what did you find out? Yeah, <laughs> a couple, it, it, here's the thing. So a couple of things, and I should preface this with the notion that when you read the book and I, you know, even when you hear me talk, I guess, a lot of the things, you know, we found are the pretty common sense. And it makes sense because we had this amazing conversation with the leader or one of the leaders, I should say, of the British SAS, the Special Air Services, which is their special forces. And, you know, we talked about decision-making in these high-stress, truly life-or-death environments. And he, t he said to me, he's like, Pascal, if it's not common sense, nobody's going to do it. If it's too complex, it's just like, you can't. The challenge with common sense is it's typically not common practice. And that's what we found in our insights as well. So uh, we looked at two sides of the coin. We looked at what are the faults, like what are the things companies, organizations, people stumble over when they do these, you know, disruptive innovation efforts? And what are the fixes? What are the things we see consistently being done? And on the fixes side, we essentially found five big buckets. First principles thinking, so really spending the time to, to really understand the problem and not just use mental shortcuts. Agility and agility across the organization, not surprisingly, leadership. So how do you as an individual show up as a leader? And we found some interesting insights there. The notion of how does an organization manage the tension between the core and the edge? So your current business and the new stuff. And then lastly, and that one surprised me a little bit as a how forceful we heard it, is the notion of an organization's ability and willingness to re- and upskill its workforce, which makes sense. Again, like common sense doesn't so, make it common practice. Yeah, well, that's, that's for sure. I, I want to unpack all of them. Before we get there, you, you have this interesting segment about kind of weak signal versus strong signal. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of listeners, considering the terminology and the people you've talked to, they're wary against big tech in terms of just being maybe better at marketing than they are better at being core businesses. And there is a sentiment in the marketplace that there hasn't been an actual huge innovation in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And that tech has not delivered on the promises there. So could you maybe, this probably four questions intertwined yeah, yeah. together, but <laughs> would you maybe address some of those comments that I made? Absolutely. So it's interesting. There's an interesting segue into your, into your question. There's a technologist in Silicon Valley, Alan Kay, who was part of the team which built Xerox Park, which in the late 60s, early 70s, invented you know most of the stuff we're using today. You know anything from Ethernet to the laser printer to you name it. It was Graphic a Skunkworks setup, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Graphical yeah. user interfaces, etc. Yeah. And that organization, and we should give them a lot of kudos, was truly innovative for various reasons, and you can study why that is, but. He made this interesting comment for years now. He basically said Silicon Valley was really, really good to take all the innovations we, we developed and others and commercialize them. And now they're running out of ideas because now they've commercialized literally everything and we're done with it. And they haven't invested, they meaning you know Silicon Valley at large, haven't invested into actual true groundbreaking innovations. So I think there's a, there's a fair argument to be made here. Now, make no mistake, commercializing something and bringing it to billion people scale is still a good skill. You know? So it's not, not an easy thing to do. 
Now, that being said, to the question around weekend strong signal, so we like to point out to people that, and this goes a little bit into the futurism conversation, that on one hand, the future is unwritten. You can't see, you don't know what the future is. You can't really predict it because the future we create. On the flip side of that, when it comes to technology and you look closely, you can actually see those early, early indicators of change. And a good example we like to talk about, because I find it just really, you know, of our generation is, you remember the Palm Pilot came out in 1996, like $300, $400. And, you know, at least in my circles, we all had one. I had one in 1996. Now, the question is, when you look at a Palm Pilot today, it looks an awful lot like an iPhone. You know, very crude, no question, but it has a touchscreen and apps and all kinds of stuff. Same form factor. Now, the question is, in 1996, who would have predicted this being the iPhone? And that's an interesting question because most of us wouldn't. Like we saw it as a personal digital assistant, which was what it was marketed at, but we didn't see the potential. Now, even if you could have seen, and this goes to the question of, this is a weak signal. This is an early indicator of change. And I think we need to get a little better at just opening our eyes towards these things. And the second question is, how do you assess when does this weak signal actually turn into something real? So 1996, it took 11 years until Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. So if you would have built a company, if you know you and I came together in 1996 and said, this is going to be an amazing like you know mobile communication device and we're going to change the world, it would have taken us 11 years and you know most likely we wouldn't have made it. So there's a way to assess this and we'll talk about this in the book a little bit more on how do you assess when does something tip? And I would argue at the moment, and I think this is very much of the moment, a lot of people feel this with AI. So for a long time, AI has not really delivered on anything. And now you can't, for better or worse, like open you know, like a website or anything which doesn't talk about ChatGPT, this like new AI-based system. And I would still say ChatGPT is fairly crude, but you can see the potential. You can feel like where it could go. So I think it's a skill we should train as leaders to really better look into the tea leaves of what the future could hold and then imagine what it can hold for us and then build. Yeah, it's like a lot of things in our society, they, they're not possible and then they become inevitable yeah. overnight. And then it's just part of the tableau. So let's dig into the findings. So I think that's probably going to be the most interesting, actionable takeaway for people listening who want to dig in further to the book. So let's start with the first principles thinking. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. So if you think about how we tend to make decisions, how we tend to think about the world, we reason by analog and we reason by analog for good reasons, right? Because it's cheaper, it's quicker, it's faster in a fast moving environment. That's what we do. So if you, a good example is like you go to business school, and they teach you a whole bunch of patterns so that the next time you see something which looks like the pattern, you make the decision accordingly. Now, the challenge is that if you are in a disruptive environment where suddenly some fundamentals shift, that can betray you. So what we found with the interviews we've done with the people we talked to, they said, like, when we feel like we're in an environment where there is a shift afoot, what we do is we start going back to first principles. You know, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, like two and a half thousand years ago, the arguing from the first principle or from the first basis from which a thing is known. So really asking ourselves, what do we actually know, fundamentally know to be true? And then how do we argue up from there? There's recently a really interesting example Elon Musk, of all people, talks about this, where 
when asked about Tesla and the batteries, he explains that when they built Tesla and wanted to turn it into a mass market vehicle, the price for the battery was about $600 a kilowatt hour, which is prohibitively expensive. And what most of us would do is we would probably say, well, you know, can we lower the price by negotiating, you know, like volume discounts, whatever. What Tesla did is to say, what do we actually know to be true about the battery? And if you think about that, you know what the battery is made of. It's not a secret. So you look at the raw materials, then you look at the bill of materials, and you realize that the bill of materials for that $600 battery is only $70. So somewhere in the process from raw material to I buy the battery now for $600, there must be inefficiencies or someone's making a lot of money. And then, of course, that led Tesla to build the mega factory or the gigafactory to build their own batteries to make batteries much cheaper. And they're producing them for like $200 a piece or so. So that is the power of really going down and saying, what do we actually know to be true? It's much more uncomfortable. It's harder. So most of us don't do it. Yet we've seen this again consistently in all the, the conversations we had that the people we talked to they use probably different words for it, but went to the length of really understanding what is like what are the constituent part of the problem and then building up from there. And that often leads to new and novel approaches to how do you solve a problem. And, and I think that's a good way to dovetail into this next session of agile everywhere. You know, a lot of businesses are rethinking, you know, their fundamental platforms. You look at Facebook and Meta, you look at what's going on. Netflix within the tech space, you know, Apple and Google, everyone's talking about AI to your point. You know, it's very difficult. If you look at the S&P, the turnover, I think, is generally like almost 20% annually, right? So these companies that we think are behemoths, they come and go. General Electric's rise and they fall. So where did you see this through line of the ability to kind of have that agility throughout the entire enterprise to allow them to be successful in this kind of future world? Yeah, it's another one of those. On the surface of it, you know, everybody nods. If I tell them like, oh, you need to be agile. <laughs> of course, like you heard this a gazillion times, right? But then you start digging, you know, first principles. And what you realize is that the vast amount of enterprises use agile principles and, and methods, of course, in software, in the way they build their software products, they deploy their software products, because that's where it came from. What they don't do is they don't use any of those ideas in any other part of the organization. So you look at, there's a report from the Agile Alliance and they, they surveyed essentially companies. And what they found is like in finance, for example, it's like 5% of companies use Agile principles in finance. You know, classic example, I, when you talk to a larger corporation, I always ask them, so how long does it take you to get a purchase order, right? And it's like, people sit there and they're like, well, you know, like I need to fill out this form and then it gets over there. And it's like classic waterfall, you know? So what we found is that the, again, the companies which manage transitions well, transformations well, who are quick on their feet in an environment which has increased uncertainty, which is our world today. They're really good at deploying the core principles of Agile, the mentality of Agile across the whole organization. So they get the whole organization to become much nimbler, much more Agile, much more able to, to move with increased speed throughout markets. And again, it's not common. It sounds easy and it sounds like, oh, of course, like checkmark, we, we are agile. But then when you start like scratching a little bit on the surface, you, you realize it's just not the case um, across larger parts of the organization. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? 
there may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. And is that just a lack of leadership or, or turnover or just the nature of these large organizations that become inherently bureaucratic over time, all the above? It's a little bit all of the buff. I think, you know, th- there's a good reason why we have process, of course. And there's a good reason why, like, process, none of the processes I've ever encountered, there wasn't a reason why that process was set up in a way. You know, sometimes we don't remember. <laughs> there was a reason to, like, actually do it the way it is being done. What we tend to not do is we then tend to not to question these things. And again, like, in parts of our business where there is outside pressure and there is an outside view on it. Again, like software is a good example. We do it, right? Like we say, well, we did waterfall methodology development and we should really be like, you know, we scrum and whatever, agile. In many other parts of the business, we never ever actually ask that question. You know, it's a sim- similar again, like, you know, I go to like this, the follow-up question I ask when I ask someone, how long does it take you to get a purchase order is why aren't you challenging the process, right? Because like, so many people tell me, it's like, oh my God, like getting that purchase order is terrible. It takes me like a week. It's like stupid, you know? And I'm like, why do you accept that? You know? So again, to your point, it's kind of like, it's like the old craft, people not actually questioning it. And also not sometimes just ignoring the fact like how much energy and, and forward momentum is being lost inside of the organization by the barriers we put up for ourselves. And that really... I'd love to hear your opinion on this because there's this huge turnover amongst some of these tech companies where the original leadership is now retiring, mm-hmm. passing the baton. Facebook, I think, is really the only one left with an original founder as a CEO. Amazon, Google, et cetera, have all kind of gone on to this next generation. Does it make you wary of their ability to weather this transformational storm? Kind of? Yeah, it's a good question, right? I think somewhat the jury is out. I also think, I mean, acknowledging just the fact of like, if you think about Amazon, this is like, what, 25 years under leadership of Jeff? I mean, after 25 years, I think he's like excused to like, you know, wanting to look after his rockets and stuff. That being said, looking at Apple, for example, where we had clearly a very like huge transitional leadership change from Steve Jobs to Tim Cook, Apple seems to be doing really fine. But you're right. I think the question for me is twofold. One is, Clearly, these companies are maturing. They've matured over the last 20 years, but they're like becoming more and more mature. And for me, an interesting question is like, what is next? Is there a new paradigm emerging which looks very different? So as you know, these companies were very different to the, parad- like the paradigms we had before. And then the question the second question, I think, is how much does the follow-on leadership carry forward the vision for the company? So how much are they managers of a company versus true visionaries who can reimagine a company moving forward? And I think there, the jury is very far out. Like, we just don't know. It will be interesting to watch, though. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's a market out there over under on Bezos coming back in the next five or 10 <laughs> yeah, years, right. you know, when stock goes down. And, and let's turn to the upskilling. And I want to marry this with your comments that you were making earlier about AI. It does seem like there's a lot of 
chatter within the workforce, apprehension about technology displacing workers. I know I've got little kids and there's a lot of talk within parental educational circles about, okay, does this mean we have to change the way that we educate children or think about what jobs look like moving forward? It, it seems like the pace of change is not going to decrease. And so we're constantly going to be having to figure out new jobs, pivot to new opportunities. So what did you see kind of as a consistent fact pattern with these organizations that were able to manage this upskilling well? Yeah, largely two things. One is, first of all, acknowledging the fact, which not every company does, acknowledging the fact that it's much cheaper to do upskilling and reskilling inside of your organization rather than trying to look for new talent. I think there's still a good chunk of companies out there who are believe that, well, if that workforce doesn't get us there, we'll just get new, a new workforce, right? And the reality of the market is, particularly in skilled, like when you get to skilled labor, this is a massive talent shortage and this will not go away. So that's one. But the second one is, I do believe that most companies would happily acknowledge the fact that, you know, reskilling, upskilling is important and they do something. But what they tend to not do particularly well is to create relevance and to create scale. So what I mean by this is very often I see companies saying, well, we do reskilling, upskilling, so we bring in a vendor or we give everybody access to, and no disrespect, you know, something like LinkedIn learning or something, right? And then we just hope like people will pick the right courses and like spend time on their own to go through these things. The best companies we found who are doing this really, really well, they said two things. One is we need to make reskilling and upskilling a C-suite endeavor. It's for me as a CEO, and a good example for this is we interviewed a gentleman called Gisbert Ruhl, who was the CEO of the largest steel company in Europe, Klöckner. And you know that industry went, of course, through like massive changes. He said, it is my role as a CEO to identify where's the future for us. And in the case of Klöckner, they launched a digital marketplace, which is now about 50% of their revenue. It's massive. And then he said, once I can like see that future, I also know what kind of people I need. So I know what the skills are. So it's, it's a, it is, this is my responsibility. I can't outsource this to my HR people, for example. So once I've done that, now I can, so this get, that creates relevancy. So now you go to your HR people and say, okay, how do we create relevant learning experiences for these people so that we get the exact skills we want and need? And then we need to figure out how do we actually get this to scale? How do we get not just our top leadership or top talent being trained. And very often, you know, one of the things I hear pretty consistently is this notion of, well, we take our VPs and our directors and we, you know, send them to Pascal with Be Radical and they get like, you know, their minds blown. And then through osmosis, this somehow trickles down to the organization, which, you know, just doesn't work. So the other thing I found with these companies is that they create the space, the environment for people to actually learn. So in the case of Klöckner, they literally went to everybody, every single one of the employees and said, we will pay you two hours a week for you to spend time on this learning platform, which we also have curated so that it has relevant content for you. And I think it's just incredibly important to do. And to round out this conversation and the topics that you highlight, you know, how do you, have you seen these organizations balance and, you know, we can use Amazon or, or Facebook might be a good example with Meta. You've got your core competency, you've got your vanilla widget that got you to where you are. How do you keep innovating and iterating on that while also maintaining this edge that allows you to be competitive in the marketplace? Here's where we found an interesting insight. So this whole notion around core and edge has been discussed many times without a doubt and the tension which that brings with it. What we found mostly 
in the in the literature and in the markets is there's fairly dogmatic views on this. So, you know, like people saying, oh, you have to separate them completely out, the core and the edge. They cannot be together for various reasons. Or on the flip side of that, they have to be deeply, tightly integrated and coupled. What we found in our work is that there is actually no right or wrong. Like what we found is that you have to find the and acknowledge the the specific culture, the specific history, your people, the industry you're in, and then figure out what is the specific, like how do you actually balance the the necessity for you to have a core business, which might be dying, you know, over longer periods of time, but it generates cash flow, which then of course, you know, is the lifeblood of the company. And then at the same time trying the new things. And I believe this is for leaders actually a really hard thing to do because you will find yourself physically in a meeting where it's about the core. It's all about optimization, maximization. You know, like you talk about like, how do I, you know, increase like margin by 0.5% somewhere. And then you physically like walk across the, the hallway and you have a meeting with your edge people and none of that matters. At the edge, it's like, none of that makes, makes any sense. It's all about like, how do I increase my learning? Like, how can I run more experiments? How can I increase my, my insight into, you know, like the new thing? And it's tricky to to do. It's like there's this term ambivalent, being ambivalent, like having like the ability to like use your left and your right hand at the same time. And I think that's a that's a good way to to think about this. What we did find though is that two things. One is there's a couple of leadership traits which actually help you with this, like creating the space for your particular for your edge to do the things. And this has a lot to do with your ability to commit to it and to be like really standing behind it and saying like. I understand that this needs to be run differently. The other one is, um, and this is a gross oversimplification, so please don't take offense, but ultimately, when you look at people, people fall into categories. Like People tend to be based on their ability and their willingness to take on risk and their comfort, comfort with risk. You know, We like to talk about them as farmers, gatherers, and hunters. So You've got farmers who don't like risk, they, they're, but they're really good at making sure that, you know, like the crop is being maintained and they love to sit, you know, like see the sunset on the veranda at the end of the day. When the gatherers, they're going out a little bit and they like pick up the honey, et cetera. And they like that thrill a little bit, but they want to sleep in their own bed. And then you've got the hunters, which are the crazy ones who are like willing to go and die, you know, getting the wool mammoth. And I think it's important for companies to acknowledge different people for different parts of the organization. And a common mistake I see companies do is they have a really good farmer and then I promote them away. They say, you know, like, hey, John, you're like amazing at like running this core business. We want you to now run the edge business. And that just, it's tricky. It's really hard to do. And so really like making sure that you get the right people in the right places and then empowering them to do what they need to do and also giving them the right incentives to do what they need to do is crucial. Well, and that leads me to my next question if <clears throat> to kind of try to, land this plane a little bit. Mm -hmm. If people listening are investing into companies, be they publicly traded, private venture, et cetera, you know, what are some things to be wary of? What are red flags that you've seen here that mean to you, this country, will, this company will struggle to do well in the future? And then what are some consistent patterns that you've seen that typically signal to you they've got the opportunity to do something pretty special? Yeah. Let me take a step back and, and very briefly talk about this notion of disruption and how we're looking at markets. So we talk about a model which we borrowed from the world of physics called state changes. So the idea is, we talked about this earlier, that in 
pretty much any disruptive scenario, the underlying consumer need doesn't change. What changes is the way we fulfill this. So you go from you know, taking a photo on a camera which has film and needs to be developed to a digital photo. Still taking a photo, still want to make a memory, you still want to capture that memory. It's just like the way we do it and it changes. And in the case of the camera, in a very dramatic way. Now, the important thing is when a state change happens and the state change is disruptive, not all of them are disruptive, but a state change is disruptive. What happens to a company is that overnight, the existing skills and processes become obsolete. Classic example, Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster, VHS video cassettes in stores, 9,000 stores all around the United States, massively successful. They were really good at figuring out where to place a store and how to merchandise it. So your core competency is that. Now you go from this to shipping someone a DVD as a, in mail order. It's a very different core competency. And it's tricky for companies to make that shift because this goes to like reskilling, upskilling, seeing it, et cetera. So what I would look for is if I were to look into opportunities in the market, I would ask myself two questions. First, is a particular market at the brink of or in the midst of one of those shifts? Because that is typically where like the, the really interesting stuff happens. And then secondly, is there a, an incumbent or a new entrant, which is particularly well poised to take advantage of that shift? Every once in a while, we found in, find incumbents who are really well poised. They understand this is happening. They prepare themselves for it. They will capture that opportunity because they have economies of scale and scope and you know brand, et cetera. Every once in a while in like Blockbuster and Netflix, you have an income, you have a, a newcomer who will take over the incumbent. So that's the perspective I like to take where we try to assess these companies by looking at how prepared are they? Are they in this phase where this happens? Not every company is, make no mistake. Are they in this phase where this happens? And secondly, are they prepared to do what's necessary for the next phase? And as you you pointed out earlier, that the the technology adoption is like it's increasing, like there's more and more and faster and faster stuff happening. So I think that, you know, in many ways, like the opportunities are also coming faster because those those shifts are happening quicker. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered in these hundreds and thousands of conversations? In many ways, how grounded and, you know, we talked about this earlier, like this notion around common sense, how non-complicated these things are. Now, make no mistake, executing them is incredibly hard, like absolutely no mistake. But conceptually, I don't think I had a single conversation with someone where, you know, someone told me something. I was like, oh my God, I would have never thought about this because that's like such a, an advanced, like convoluted, complex thought, right? It really comes down to, and I was somewhat surprised by it because I really expected more of a, you know, you need to have like two MBAs and a PhD to understand what I'm going to tell you now versus, no, actually, you know, like if you had a lemonade stand as a kid and you really understand how to run a lemonade stand, let me tell you how this works, which again, this comes then back to the leadership, the execution of it, it all in the execution. That's a hard part. And Pascal, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing to the, all the stories and to all the work you've done on this new book. And again, if you could remind folks the title of the book and where they can find it, we'll include a link to the show notes, but what's the best way for them to get a hold of this? Yeah, super. Thank you so much. As I mentioned, the book is called Disrupt Disruption. You'll find it on every bookstore. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore can order it for you. There's a website called disruptthebook, 
it's kind of funny, disruptthebook.com, which has also more information about it. Um, yeah, I would love for, for people to get a, give it a read and, you know, let me know what you think. Yeah, and I'll also give a shout out to Pascal as being an excellent keynote speaker. So if you're putting on an event or organization that does conferences, that's how I first heard him was at a family office conference and he's really good live. So, you know, check out the book, check out his website. They're doing really cool things there. And Pascal, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you so much for having me. This was a super fun conversation. Okay, take care. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.